You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, exists to improve healthcare in America. We want to make care better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. If you're a fan of this podcast, if you have feedback for us, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Now, in this episode, we're focusing on specialty practices and how to help them coordinate care with primary care and other health services. Later on in our Fast Facts segment, we observe National Minority Mental Health Awareness Month with important stats to share with colleagues and community. But first, on this show, we often talk about NCQA's products, which aim to improve the quality of American health care. You've heard us discuss our HEDIS measures. We've talked about patient-centered medical home standards, also known as PCMH. We've even talked about the content expert certification that you can earn that will make you the font of information at your company for all things PCMH. And every time we have a fast fact segment, and that's every episode, I've highlighted numerous individual quality measures that NCQA has produced. In this episode, we focus on the closest relative to PCMH. That is PCSP, Patient-Centered Specialty Practice. Most of us have ridden the roller coaster of patient experience. Your primary doctor maybe recommends that you go see a specialist for something. They send you to an MRI. They send you to get another form. They send you to get a lab test. They send you to get imaging and a biopsy. And then you go back to the original specialist for those results. And then when you finally do see your primary doctor again, you just hope They've all talked to each other and relayed the info to the PCP, and your doctors have some answers for you. While it's important for a patient to advocate for themselves, that shouldn't have to mean repeating everything they've experienced to every single doctor that they see. Patients hate having to chase down test results so that they can get that information and bring it back to the PCP for them. And as it turns out, specialty practices themselves are also frustrated by poor communication and lack of coordination with the referral process. And that's where PCSP recognition comes in. As noted on our website, the PCSP Recognition Program focuses on coordinating and sharing information among primary care clinicians and specialists. It requires clinicians to organize care around patients, across all clinicians seen by a patient. Patients and their families or other caregivers are included in planning care and considered partners in managing conditions. Specialty practices that earn NCQA's PCSP recognition communicate more effectively with primary care, integrate services better with primary care, and improve the quality of their care. And as for the patients, patients see the difference through reduced costs, better data and records management, improved identification and oversight of chronic conditions, making things better and not worse, and more face time with a more satisfied medical staff. For this interview, we found one of our greatest advocates of the PCSP recognition program, an extremely busy and dedicated medical team that saw the need for PCSP 
found solutions that worked conclusively and spread the word throughout their company and beyond about the effectiveness of the patient-centered specialty practice model of care. And now they want you to know all about it. Xiaoyan Wang, MD, is Chief of Clinical Cardiology at Providence Heart Institute in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Wang leads clinical operations and care transformation for advanced heart failure, electrophysiology, general cardiology, and interventional cardiology subspecialties. Danielle Christensen, our other guest, is Clinical Program Manager at the Providence Heart Institute in Portland, Oregon, with experience in both ambulatory and acute care settings. Danielle's expertise spans business development and strategy, change management and development, and the optimized exchange of electronic health records, something we're all interested in. Dr. Wang and Danielle led a session at NCQA's first Health Innovation Summit in the fall of 2022. And they ran a fascinating and informative training webinar that's still available now for you for download on our education website. I'm throwing you the link to that in our episode's description. The title of their course, CCE Quarterly, Building with a Blueprint, Taking a Patient-Centered Specialty Practice from Medical Neighborhood to High-Performing Network. To moderate this episode's interview, we welcome back someone who is much smarter than I am, NCQA's Senior Vice President for Product and Customer Operations, Lori Ferguson. Truth be told, far fewer clinicians are pursuing PCSP recognition than the older and larger scaled PCMH program. This Providence Heart Institute leadership wants you wants to get more specialists involved to help ensure PCSP standards get adopted. And they talk about how PCSP can be implemented in value-based care. So, in fact, if if you don't yet use a value-based payment system, if wherever you are, you're still in the traditional fee-for-service and have to coordinate with value-based care facilities, that's, that's fine. PCSP will help you get through it. All of this, bottom line, it's all about putting the patient first. Here's Lori Ferguson to kick it off. Dr. Huang and Danielle, I've been looking forward to sitting down with you and discussing the work you have been leading at Providence Health Clinic. Uh, You're no stranger to NCQA, and uh, as an early adopter of PCSP uh, and a presenter at the 2022 NCQA Health Innovation Summit, uh, we've gotten to know a lot about the work you've done, and we're excited to share it with our listeners. Before we jump in, uh, could you please tell us a little more about Providence Heart Clinic and the work you do and the members that you serve? Danielle? So at the Providence Heart Institute in Oregon, we are the largest cardiology group in our state. We serve eight acute care hospitals throughout the state and 37 clinic locations. Uh, We have over 70 physicians, 45 APPs, and that's across 12 different cardiovascular subspecialties and about 300 staff members as well on our team. And we serve over 300,000 patients annually. So a very large group. And I think that's where we've really found value in the PCSP guidelines is it helps us keep all of our clinics moving together in the same patient-centered direction. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, PhD being an early adopter of NCQA's patient-centered specialty practice uh, recognition, uh, Dr. Wong, you told a story uh, at the Health Innovation Summit that 
uh, almost probably 10 years ago, a colleague informed you uh, that NCQA was rolling out the PCSP program. And, and I'm, I'm curious, why did that excite you as a cardiologist? At the time, I've heard a lot about um, PCMH, patient-centered medical home from NCQA, as well as other state medical home models and how that have uh, transformed how primary care is practiced around the country and how successful that model was. So I was very excited to hear that NCQA published the specialty practice standards because I feel the same set of standards for specialists across different specialties make sense, will allow us to better collaborate in a big health system like Providence. And also the fact that the specialty standards are set by the same body that set the medical home standards will allow for our work to connect directly and seamlessly with the primary care groups that we serve. So I was very excited. Yeah. Wow. That, that's amazing. Now, when, when you brought this to your colleagues, was everyone excited? Was it easy to get everyone on board? Or, you know, how, how did you go about getting the support you needed to make these important investments? I think importantly, our um, leadership uh, recognized the importance and saw exactly this um, same vision that we had. So um, the leadership um, immediately um, allowed us the financial and staffing support to do this kind of project. In addition, we were part of this Portland Interhospital Physicians Association. So there was a group of very progressive primary care and specialty leaders that shared the same vision. So that was the forum where we got support to get started on this kind of work. Uh, so I'd love to hear just a little more about uh, how did you structure their work? How did you go about um, uh, putting in the, the, the standards in place and, and, and moving your practice forward? Yeah, so we learned from our primary care colleagues and the project managers from the Portland IPA back then who uh, had worked on PCMH for years. So how do you even start this project, right? Form a project team, develop a timeline, um, have a shared document uh, of a project tracker. How do you form the uh, project um, leadership um, and get uh, clinicians involved? Um, how do you develop the, the specific documents um, in a addition to uh, the more important piece, which is the relationship building uh, with our referring groups um, and um, having the uh, organizational support to continue this work over the last 10 years. Uh, you didn't just stop with your, your cardiology practice, right? Uh, you went over on the next few years, you spread the documentation and processes to other practice sites and, and eventually other specialties. How did that begin to change the way that you work with primary care and other specialties? 
Um, I think we we always have said that we use PCMH as our blueprint um, so that we didn't have to reinvent the wheel as to how we need to practice and how we communicate and uh, co-manage um, with our primary care colleagues. So we took the standards and we developed the workflow we implement them um, across our different sites. And because we do a lot of this work behind the scenes for the clinicians and all they see is, you know, uh, smoothing of their um, their day, right? To be able to find that referral document was the first step um, to have a standard template so that they can easily read their own notes and their colleagues' notes, um, to have a standard workflow and uh, staffing support so that we can handle uh, result reporting um, uh, and avoid any shifting uh, documents back and forth. They see the result of the work, the operational work that we do behind the scenes. So um, that's how we bought, um, got, uh, got them to buy in for this process. Uh, you have some real results to point to, both uh, from a patient experience as well as uh, financial measures. Can you speak a little to that? We didn't just do um, this program as if it were a standard and a certification we can get and then take that and put it on our wall or put it in our uh, uh, letterhead and be done with it. Uh, we um, made it into a science. We, we um, tracked our various uh, performance from different aspects, patient satisfaction store, a score, financial uh, performance, um, cost, um, and uh, productivity, efficiency, and we um, uh, wrote a paper and we published in the New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst so that we can share our results with the broader audience. Danielle, any more to add to that? Sure. I think as Dr. Wong said, it's really having PCSP as our, our ethos more than just our, our blueprint and our standards that we, when we have a new program or a new project, we look at how will this affect our patients and how can we improve the staff and provider experience as well, keeping those three elements all moving in concert. Um, for example, during the COVID pandemic, when we faced a lot of upheaval, our, our PCSP mindset is really what saved us in that transition to telehealth, that we were used to this model we had established and tested and tried about establishing a small pilot project team, doing rapid testing, writing up the workflow, rewriting the workflow when it doesn't work, getting feedback from patients, getting feedback from providers and staff and improving it, and then quickly scaling it across the practice. And because that was the same process we had used for many different projects with PCSP, we were able to start up telehealth within just a few weeks. And that then shows the financial result as well, that we were able to maintain our volumes. We didn't lose business. We were able to continue serving our patients, which helps the patients and the staff and also our bottom line as a practice. Yeah. Another um, 
um, benefit, um, which we didn't expect uh, from this um, project, is that we can use those um, standard workflows to onboard and train our staff and also uh, new providers mm -hmm. so that um, we can um, uh, teach them, you know, how to be most efficient in the care that they deliver as well as being able to um, have them work from one site uh, to another so that it's the same experience for them as well. Yeah, you, you, you speak about breaking down cultural barriers um, as though uh, either primary or, or specialty, you know, has to own a member at, at a given time and that you can have a shared responsibility and, and trust in one another uh, to uh, in the overall care of, of that patient. Um, and with this uh, shared responsibility, uh, you've put formal care agreements in place mm -hmm. and you began to build what you call high functioning networks. I'd love to hear more about that and, and how that's positioned you uh, to take on value-based contracts we likely forever will be living in a hybrid environment where some of our contracts are fee-for-service while others are value-based. So um, in the last couple of years, uh, Providence has formed a high-performing network uh, in uh, Portland metro area that includes payers, hospital systems, as well as um, either private practice or employed both primary care and specialty groups. And we brought these groups together. We signed on contracts with various payers that is um, value-based where we look at total cost of care and we compare current performance with um, historic baseline and we um, change behavior in terms of shared accountability for the care of the patient. And if we have shared savings, then that gets fee fed back to um, the health plan, the hospital, and the physician groups to incentivize groups to provide care that may not be immediately uh, reimbursed um, in terms of um, work RVU, but clearly advances the care of the patient and improves the patient experience. And, and Danielle, you may have some thoughts on this. You know, I know COVID kind of pushed us forward uh, in, into the, the virtual world, um, but you know, as we shifted from patients coming into the office to uh, the virtual uh, care, how have the practices, processes, or, or standards of the practice needed to evolve, or do we still have work to do there uh, to, to make this a long-term working model in healthcare? Sure. I think that's the question of the year, really. Um, during the pandemic and those early days, we were forced to implement telehealth very rapidly as a direct replacement. We usually had patients coming to the office, and then as of one day, we suddenly were all working from home, and the patients could not come to the office for their own safety and for the safety of our staff and providers. So we had to look at it initially as how do we provide the same high-quality care in a completely new environment? We had only barely dabbled in telehealth and had it as something we'd wanted to do. It was on our strategic plan. It seemed like a great option, but then suddenly it became front of the list. 
So first we started with how do we maintain our PCSP standards? So we developed with our staff a virtual rooming process, for example, where we still were engaging the medical assistant or other clinical support staff to contact the patient, update their medication list, make sure adding in some training about how to use Zoom, because we have a lot of our patients in the Zoom and telehealth was new to them too. So how could we still provide that patient-centric experience of making sure the patient was reassured and knew they were receiving the same quality care? They still had that connection to their care team. So virtual rooming was one example of that. And quickly training up staff to be essentially Zoom coaches to help call the patient, get them online, make sure they're prepared so that it's still efficient for the provider to see all of their virtual appointments during the day. I think that was that first phase of how do we maintain our standards? How do we replace our in-person care with virtual care? And now the question really is, what's the long-term use of telehealth? Because there's a lot of ways, if you just do it as a direct replacement, you're not saving any money. It takes the same staff. It's really not as efficient. We're not using it to its full potential. So now we're starting to look at what's the appropriate role for telehealth. Are there subsets of our patient population who are better served by telehealth than they would be by an in-person appointment? And how do we also deliberately identify where is the right place for in-person care? So we're getting the right patient in the right setting at the right time. Make, makes a lot of sense. And, and today... Um, where, where do you stand as far as the percentage of pa uh, patients that are, are getting their care virtually versus, versus in the office? And do you see that trending in any direction? We've really um, stabilized a bit in terms of virtual care and that volume. I think that it's what's interesting to see is the variation across our subspecialties, where, again, we're no longer seeing it as a one-size-fits-all. Everybody does telehealth. So, for example, we have patients who are tracked by our electrophysiologists who have pacemakers or ICDs or different devices who they love telehealth because this is really a practice where there's a lot of electronic data available from the patient's device in our wonderful modern world. So it's convenient for the patient. There's no reason for them to drive to the office. The doctor can see all of their data, all the right information to provide that patient with the same level of care, but they don't have to leave their home. So that's, that's one place where we've seen a higher adoption of telehealth. Um, and then it might be less as adopted in our visits where we really do need a physical exam or also just patient preference who prefer an inpatient. So we've started to see some differences, but it's definitely still a core part of our practice. So over time during the pandemic, we've seen the the, the fluctuation of um, a virtual percentage. I would see I would say across our subspecialties, it's probably in the low teens as a percentage that's using virtual care. What remains a challenge is that how do we, as uh, Danielle was saying, intentionally uh, figure out who are the best patients to be served. Right now, mm -hmm. we're very much driven by patient preference. It turns out, um, you know, even though we believe um, intellectually that or intuitively that virtual care is works best for the, pa the rural patients, the frail patients who have a mobility uh, difficulties or who um, will 
you know, um, need a lot of help for transportation. Uh, patients who have language barriers where we have to schedule an in-person in uh, interpreter or they their family need to come. Um, those paradoxically are not well served by virtual because um, they're limited by their ability to navigate technology. So I can imagine in the more value-based care um, uh, payment model that the delivery system or the insurance company would be motivated to provide this kind of technology support so that we can address those patients so that we can reduce the the cost of transportation the cost of in-person uh, interpreter and ease the patient and their family's way right um, um, so those th that would be an area that we need to work on more intentionally Danielle, I, I heard you say at the NCQA Health Innovation Summit that uh, you have moved from a, a relationship-based network to uh, now having a contract with potential savings or, or performance risk, depending on your performance together uh, across specialties and, and provider types. How has that changed the patient's experience? I think that we see our value-based care contract really as getting some reward for the work we had done through all of these years of our PCSP journey and aligning those incentives as Dr. Wong has talked about. But I think really the key for us was going back to our PCSP journey and our medical neighborhood work, which was really that central phase after we did our first round of PCSP certification, which was really the internal work getting ourselves organized as a heart clinic. How do we schedule patients? How do we answer our phones? How do we get their medical records that were prepared for their visit? All of that really core work to get ourselves organized. It was really that medical neighborhood phase, I think that provides the most benefit to our patients. And that was a time when we really started collaborating directly with primary care practices and being very deliberate about working both with our internal Providence Medical Group primary care and also our partners out in the community. As with Providence Heart Clinic, about half of our referrals come from private practices or other large groups within Oregon. So we really built those relationships and those care agreements so that when a patient goes to their primary care and their PCP says they need to go to cardiology, we have a very clearly defined system and agreement of how that referral will be handled. So that really helps our patient journey because typically the, the old world before PCSB was the primary care doctor would send a referral to the heart clinic. The patient wasn't sure, were they supposed to call the clinic? Would their primary care call them? Would cardiology call the patient or someone? Like, how is this going to happen? Whereas now, because we've followed this PCSP blueprint, it's very comfortable and clear for the patient where the primary care can tell them with confidence that they're sending this referral to cardiology and the patient can expect a call within two days to schedule that appointment. So that's really able to give since we built our, we got ourselves organized internally. We worked with our primary care collaboratively and really wrote it down and agreed to it in a care agreement that the patient knows they'll get that call within two days. And the primary care doctor on the other side knows that they'll receive that consult note back within two days after the new patient appointment. 
So that really helped the patient journey and that it reduced the need for all of these multiple calls and questions going in so many directions, really to make it a linear and smooth process that the patient feels comfortable and cared for and that they're being handed off throughout this journey, not just sent out the door and left on their own. But instead, we've really built this neighborhood around them. Yeah, I, I want to highlight um, uh, what you're saying, Danielle, is that the the NCQA named this set of standards patient-centered specialty practice, right? So it wasn't designing workflow from the efficiency standpoint from the practice. Uh, it wasn't designed to be centered uh, uh, about payment, but rather it is grounded at the patient-centeredness and the standards are pretty vigorous uh, for us that we have to uh, design our workflow too, but also each time we do, we get recognized, we get evaluated, uh, we have to provide data to say that we are practicing to that kind of standard, that the referral loop closure is occurring with this kind of deadline. And there's this kind of um, uh, documentation uh, mm -hmm. so that the patients don't fall through the cracks. And, and the shared responsibility also comes into play once that, that patient is stabilized, right? And, yeah. and uh, having trust in primary care that you can hand that patient back and, and they will continue uh, to keep up the medication prescriptions and, and such in, in a way that is um, you know, more financially viable for, for the value-based contract that may be in place. Is that right? In, in fact, we, we have a smart phrase that does that. When we feel the patient has graduated from uh, needing cardiology um, um, uh, specialists, we say return care to PCP. We say, dear doctor so-and-so, this patient is doing well from a cardiac standpoint. I send this patient back to your care. Future refills will be sent to you but if you have any questions, please feel free to contact us. And we also communicate the same message to the patient and in their after visit summary to say, um, you've stabilized, you've graduated, you're doing great, you're in good hands, but we're happy to uh, take care of you whenever you have any issues in the future. So that's kind of the shared accountability and the efficiency that NCQA has inspired us to do. Uh, you know, you described uh, the PCSP standards as the true north of, of the work that you have done, the foundation on which you've been able to achieve so much success. What advice do you have for other practices that, may be interested in embarking on, on the PCSP uh, recognition journey, because I will say it, it's been yeah. a journey, as you've said. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's the that's the challenge that brought us together, right? In contrast to PCMH, there has been markedly lower adoption rate, right? So to this day, 10 years later, um, we have 20 out of 45 cardiology sites around the country to be PCSP recognized. Um, 
across all specialties uh, across the country. This is data that I looked up on your website last week. There are only <clears throat> 260 practices. This is in contrast to 8,300 PCMH just by NCQA standards, not to mention the state medical home um, recognized sites uh, and um, and other programs. So why is that? Um, um, one, I think there was a, 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 a need of survival for primary care back then. Uh, secondly, um, there has been better uh, reimbursement um, or um, health plan support for the initial PCMH um, investment and uh, adoption. We haven't really seen that in specialty care. And I think traditionally specialty care, especially a, uh, a very procedural um, heavy specialty like cardiology, we've focused our um, effort at acute care, procedural care. Uh, but increasingly, we're recognizing the importance of ambulatory services. Um, and um, the EHR enables us, but also has posed a lot of challenge. So I think this is where um, uh, specialty clinics around the country should recognize you know, NCQA has a set of standards, has the blue uh, blueprint, has the playbook for you to adopt so that you can set up a more efficient ambulatory service. And I also, um, when we speak to our primary care colleagues around the country, um, I also ask for for their support, for them to speak to their specialty partners to say, Oh, I've heard about this program. What do you guys think? Um, you know, can we uh, help you to um, um, uh, get onto this PCSP journey, which clearly has helped some of um, some of us um, early adopters? So who knows? Yeah, no, that's great advice. Well, it certainly makes me wonder. Where's PHC going next? What what innovation lies ahead? This was a good question I thought about is um, where where do we go in the next 10 years with uh, PCSP work? Um, paradoxically, I think that as we refine and overcome uh, technical challenges um, for the last 10 or 15 years, we've we've been kind of battling with EHR. Um, now this is the time to make technology work for us, to um, use uh, big data, uh, machine learning, AI to help us identify and screen uh, big populations uh, to find the, the, the patients who really need our 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 effort, our focus, and our care, and um, target our um, care to those po that population or those individuals, so that we come back to, you know, what the clinicians went into medicine to do, which is more face-to-face -face, um, relationship building with the patient, and more extended time spent with the patient. Dr. Xiaoyan Huang, Chief of Clinical Cardiology, interviewed alongside Clinical Program Manager Danielle Christensen, 
both of the Providence Heart Institute in Portland, Oregon, interviewed by NCQA's Senior Vice President for Product and Customer Operations, Lori Ferguson. Links to information about PCSP recognition, as well as Providence's services and the webinar mentioned before, all of these are included in our episode's description, so please check them out. Okay, everyone, it's time again to focus on the place, the place that inspires and accelerates healthcare quality in America. And that place is NCQA's Health Innovation Summit. For three amazing days in October 2023, the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center in Orlando, Florida, will host our annual convention. Do I sound excited? I'll tell you why. I am no longer burying the lead, folks. I will be at the summit and our handy-dandy podcast booth, hosting live interviews with healthcare leaders, innovators, and presenters from across the healthcare ecosystem. In the weeks to come on this show, Inside Healthcare, you're going to hear fresh interviews with healthcare leaders set to appear and speak at the summit. And they'll talk about what they're going to talk about. They're not going to give it all away, but you got to listen in. The Health Innovation Summit focuses on all aspects of quality, including digital solutions, health equity, value-based care, and more. It will feature thought-provoking speakers, one-of-a-kind education opportunities, and an exhibit floor showcasing the latest in healthcare innovation. So register now. Go to ncqasummit.com for more. Time now for Fast Facts, important bits of info for you to use and reuse. July marks National Minority Mental Health Awareness Month. As much as we talk about the historical healthcare disparities experienced by racial and ethnic communities, we often overlook the extent of the mental and behavioral needs of these populations. And as we often talk about whole health, in this case, that physical and behavioral health needs should not be handled separately, considered separate, we need to remember that health equity should always extend to mental health awareness as well. The following information comes from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services through the Office of Minority Health. I'll put links for everything in the description, but to begin with, some factors causing minority mental health issues include lack of access to mental health care services, systemic discrimination, and the stigma about everything having to do with mental health care prevalent in society and various cultures. Quoting numbers from SAMHSA, in 2021, studies estimated that while over half of non-Hispanic white adults experiencing mental health issues sought treatment, only 39% of African-American adults, a little more than a third of all Latino adults, and just a quarter of Asian adults sought mental health treatment. A study from Veterans Affairs found that one in five Native American veterans reported PTSD problems. That's twice the number of non-Hispanic white veterans who reported symptoms. And in related numbers, in the year 2020, suicide was the second leading cause of death among Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders ages 20 to 34. And for ages 10 to 19 in that group, suicide was number one. NCQA has a number of quality health products dealing with monitoring behavioral health treatment coverage and follow-ups. One interesting product that I'm going to mention is our Managed Behavioral Health Organization Accreditation, or MBHO. This accreditation program is for employers. Hitting a number of important points, MBHO is described on our site with the following. 
NCQA accredited organizations must demonstrate that they follow evidence-based practices for providing high-quality care across multiple standards. MBHO accreditation emphasizes care coordination, complex case management, and data exchange between health plans and behavioral health organizations. Okay, more information is available on MBHO and links to HHS resources on minority mental health. All of these are available on the pages linked in this description. Well, as we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, this podcast, we ask you for your thoughts now on today's show. Email us at communications at ncqa.org anytime and be sure to include Inside Healthcare in the subject line. If you're coming up empty, here's our question for this episode. What's one way for a fee-for-service practice to convert to a value-based care model? Think about it, then tell us about it. It's not a small question. And if you have a comment, a suggestion, an idea for a guest on our show, you want to be a guest, it's okay. Just email us, let us know. Again, communications at ncqa.org. And be sure to write Inside Healthcare in the subject line. Makes it easier to find you. Hope to hear from you soon. Well, that's it for episode 110 of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. Thanks for joining us. This episode's done, but there are plenty that came before it for you to explore and investigate and share with everybody. You can find us at our blog, blog.ncqa.org. You can find us on any Apple or Google streaming app. And whether you download the show or you stream it, if you find us, follow us. And please keep spreading the word. Help us build our audience by letting others know about NCQA's work. And if you haven't done so already, connect with NCQA on LinkedIn and Twitter. You'll get video promos for this very show that you can share with your friends and colleagues. And as always, of course, we thank you, our loyal listener, for helping our audience continue to grow. On behalf of our award-winning NCQA communications team, I'm Dave Smolar. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast. <laughs>